0: From Brandeis University, remotely, welcome to Recall This Book, a podcast that looks backward to see into the future. Our idea is to assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events by looking at books that shape the world we inherited. Today, our hosts are myself, Elizabeth Ferry, hello, and uh, Pu Wang, who is an Associate Professor of Modern uh, Chinese Literature at Brandeis University. His uh, specialties are literature and culture and comparative frameworks, critical theory and translation studies, and he's also an accomplished and highly regarded poet. Hello, Poo, and welcome. Hi, everyone. And uh, we're also very glad to, um, to welcome our guest for this week, Lisa Dillman from Emory University. Lisa is a professor of Spanish and Portuguese, and she's a translator, a very accomplished translator. She's translated many novels and scholarly works, and most recently, several works by Andres Barba, as well as Yuri Herrera's Signs Proceeding the End of the World and the Transmigration of Bodies. In 2016, she won the Best Translated Book Award for Signs Preceding the End of the World, which is the topic of our podcast today. Welcome, Lisa. We're really happy to have you.
1: Thanks. Hi, I'm really happy to be here.
0: Okay, great. Um, So maybe Lisa, you could start by telling us a little bit about the book and about your experience of translating it.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, I think it's a complicated book by all accounts and it's a novel that can be viewed in what I think of as three different but complementary ways. So it's the story of a young woman named Makina who travels to the United States in search of her missing brother. She's been sent on this mission by her mother. And in that sense, the, the, the novel can be read as a fairly straightforward, uh, literal social commentary on US-Mexico relations, on lots of issues surrounding migration, treatment of immigrants, social justice, feminism, all sorts of contemporary issues. It's also kind of a classic quest tale in which, you know, you have all of the all of the steps you might see in, in any classic quest. So you have the call being set forth, in this case, by a woman, set forth by Makina's mother, Cora, who sends her to find her brother. So we have a sort of inversion of stereotypical gendered roles. We have Makina as the... Uh, sort of archetypal heroine and of course she crosses into this new world and has many tests that have to be passed before she can reach her goal which is not a straightforward one and which can be debated what that means and then there's also a reading as this being a the entire book being a voyage to Mictlan which is the Aztec underworld Um, and in that reading the souls of the dead must travel it's sometimes eight sometimes nine steps in order to to reach Mictlan where their souls can be at peace and in that reading of the book uh, Makina would would actually be dead the entire the entire time so it's a complicated book and it's also uh, complicated on all sorts of linguistic levels which makes translating it uh, or which made translating it both really, really fun and rewarding and also incredibly challenging.
0: You know, I'm not a scholar of translation studies, unlike Pooh, who will have much more to say probably, but
1: you know, there's sort of on the
0: one end, there's this idea of translation as this kind of carrying across and then can it succeed or fail at being a sort of clear lens or a sort of, you know, um, perfect uh, transferal. And often the answer to that is no, it never can. It always entails some form of loss, right? Um, But what you're suggesting and what it seems like the book is suggesting is kind of getting out of the idea of loss or gain entirely to this sort of multiplicity, simultaneity simultaneity of multiple worlds or something like that. Is that, does that make sense or
1: is that? I would agree with that. I I find it far more um, fruitful to to think of translation as a remediation or an iteration or a proliferation um, than I do a a transference, because precisely as you've just said, I think conceiving of uh, of translation as a transfer of meaning automatically leads to this rhetoric of loss.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, which sort of seems to be embracing the indeterminacy of the text, but kind of stops short of of doing so as fully as, as this might.
1: Yeah, precisely. Yeah.
0: Um, it seems like the, I mean, the novel itself is in some ways about translation too, right? Exactly. I mean, Makina is this kind of, you know, this messenger character, this border crosser. Um, there's a great line at one point where she says, uh, you are the door, not the one who walks through it. Exactly, um, yeah. As a kind of principle of living. Yes. So I'm curious what, what either of you think about
2: that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if I may, I, Lisa, I would like to, to add on Elizabeth's question about, um, this novel being not only a text you translated, but also a novel, a text about translingual existence or translingual death, you know, as a, as a yeah. scholar of literature, I simply cannot resist, uh, citing your, your translation, some, some very Important lines. Uh, Elizabeth just uh, went for one line, and I'm thinking about the place where uh, the protagonist Makina enters the United States. Uh, this is the moment of border crossing. She is she is a, a messenger. She is the symbol of a switchboard, and translator is always compared to a messenger, uh, especially in the the instrumentalist uh, view of it, and. Uh, she starts to, to, to hear this uh, intermediary uh, tongue uh, among the Latinos and then there is uh, the, the line uh, about the language is uh, being like uh, the protagonist Makina herself. Makina is, quote, malleable, erasable, permeable. These words can, can also be used to, to support uh, your argument about the instability inherent instability of language, literature uh, and the text. Uh, I, I really like you to I, I would really like you to uh, come back to that moment uh, to, uh, to think about uh, this larger theoretical question within that that that's uh, very specific plot of Makina being uh, a, uh, a female uh, messenger uh, entering yeah. the United States, uh, seeing this world, uh, encountering Latinos and calling uh, the other people's uh, Anglos.
1: Yes, I think that in many ways, it, as you said, this this the book is about translation as a metaphor and in a literal sense, right? It's Makina herself literally is a translator. She literally translates for people at the switchboard um, in not two, but three languages. And, you know, she's a character who a lot of a lot of people have referred to as sort of kick-ass, like she, right? She's an ass kicker. And what's really fascinating to me is that this power of hers derives from wielding language, right? The power that she is able to have over people wherever she goes, uh, she does use a little physical force as well, but the power that she that she r- truly has uh, derives from her skill with translating words as well as knowing which words not to say and when not to say them. And so, as you said, when she's at home, she works as a switchboard operator, working in three languages. And then when you refer to this, the, the beautiful intermediary tongue that she talks about on arrival into the US, when she is wandering around the town that she arrives to, one of the things that I find so generative and hopeful and, and just lovely about this is that she, she views this intermediary tongue as a source of celebration, mm-hmm. right? And so she, she, I, I know that there has been a lot of poetry, scholarship, et cetera, on ideas of loss and the pain of losing languages. But for her, it's something to celebrate.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and she revels in the creativity of this new language that is being made by these new inhabitants of the land where she is. Mm-hmm. And her this her, she is is shown in this situation sort of learning because this is a new language, and in some senses, kind of transcends perhaps her knowledge of English, which she already had and, and already used as the at the switchboard, but then continues to use, I mean a, again, in one of the most poignant, I think scenes in the entire novel, when she, along with a group of other men are detained by a cop, again, she uses language, right? She uses language to get out of the situation Mm -hmm. and snatches. And in this case, language made material. So she snatches a pen and paper and writes down a series of words that leaves the cop so gobsmacked, he basically lets people go. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yes, I think in, in, in many, many ways, the novel is about language, the power of language, and the malleability of language.
0: I mean, I read in the in the sort of bio of Herrera, the author, that he has a PhD in linguistics, right? Did, and also that you and he spoke a lot about over the course of your translation, right? You were sort of constantly in. in yes, yes. Did we, he ever talk about these questions about translation and language? Um. I mean, I mean, as
1: a dementia, as the book, as a subject of the book. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would say now I'm working on his fifth book now, so I, I, we've gotten to be fairly good friends. I would say, mm-hmm. and, um, and all of his books uh, have yeah. language as a, a central theme. One that perhaps could could be overlooked. That that might not literally form uh, plot elements per se. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be arguable uh but um the the wielding of language and the power of words and 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 the material realities that one can create with them i think is something yeah yeah
0: and and i guess i was um just to be more specific have you talked about these kind of theories of translation that you were touching on or this sort of idea of the multiple worlds of language that languages produce or things like that
1: uh, perhaps not at the time that I was translating it. I actually, I mean, I actually translated this book probably s- seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, many, uh, quite honestly, many of the uh, books that I have, uh, read and have influenced my thinking about translation most have been written since, since I think, uh-huh. although, um, I partially feel like they have articulated uh, senses that I had and didn't know how to put into words. And I will also say that Herrera is by far, by far, by far the most um, I would perhaps embracing of this post-structuralist uh, indeterminacy mm-hmm. of, any, of any writer I've worked with. Mm-hmm. He, he has, from the start, spoken about um co-creation mm-hmm. and uh and has talked about things like you know the importance of being true to the translation
0: mm-hmm. so co-creation of the text between the author and the translator you mean
1: yes and and and, and the reader as well i mean right mm-hmm. yeah. I, I would i would i don't know if i can say this as a i don't know if i know this as a fact but my strong inclination is that one of the reasons he uh, has not often or, or super openly spoken about the entire Miklan reading of the novel? Mm-hmm. Um, is because he believes, this part I'm sure, that uh, the novel means what meaning you bring to sure. it. Yeah. He is not the purveyor of meaning. and And so therefore,
0: Right, there's not a secret text that he has the key to
1: or something like that, yeah. If, sure. if, you, didn't, if you didn't realize this, you missed it. Mm-hmm, right.
2: I think Herrera's language, Herrera's fictional novelistic language sometimes speaks volumes to our urgent politics of uh, languages mm. uh, in the United States and beyond. I, I, I have to go, go for this line, uh, quote, more than the midpoint between home and Anglo, their tongue is a nebulous territory between what is dying out and what is not yet boring. Mm. So it's it's just uh, a line that um, uh, that 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 is so powerful, uh, not only in the flow of the plot about uh, Makina's journey. It is something I would like to quote uh, in my next book about okay. translation. But at the same time, I think this. Um, this line speaks directly to, to, to the to the current uh, uh, cultural uh, political debates uh, here and beyond.
1: I think that's really interesting, and I think it's an it's another um, sign of hopefulness in in, <laughs> very, in these very bleak times. But the the concept of because you know when when you speak of linguistic purity and and you know for for decades people talked about Spanglish as some sort of bastardization both on the left and on the right right it's it's either it's incorrect English it's incorrect Spanish it's something you know for people who don't know how to properly speak one language or the other right mm. um, and so this linguistic um, elitism uh, and the idea then of because in the section poo that you're you are quoting there he talks about you know people believing something to be perfect until they Slip into another tongue, and so mm-hmm. I very like um, the idea of what is dying out being this elitist concept of linguistic purity, and what mm-hmm. is coming being being this plurality and this acceptance. It's, mm-hmm. it's something that I that I, in political terms, I think of to myself now quite a bit in terms of you know this 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 place that we're in with such horrific uh, political views and such extreme hatred and intolerance being just spewed. And sometimes I think, yes, but this is dying out. And mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: right. It's interesting to have a book that's called Signs Proceeding the End of the Worlds described as hopeful, but I, I definitely agree with the reading of it, yeah. Well, maybe this is the moment in which we uh, shift to our recallable books section. This is when the part of the conversation where we kind of suggest things for each other and for our listeners that we might want to read or, or engage with further. So I don't know, Pu, have you have you brought a recallable book to our table?
2: Yes, actually, uh, I, I tried to do something uh, counterintuitive, but I think this is in the spirit of Lisa's translation of... Uh, 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 the signs preceding the end of the world. Mm-hmm. I have a really heavy book here, <laughs> so actually it's not. A, a, it, it, it it is a dictionary. So this is a dictionary of.
1: Uh, oh well. Wow.
2: Untranslatables.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay.
2: So it it is a kind of uh, encyclopedian uh, a dictionary for. Uh, philosophers, especially for philosophers working in the uh, European continental tradition. But uh, in in your uh, translator's note, Lisa, you mentioned your, how you end up uh, turning the, the concept of the, the literary concept of verse into a verb in order to translate uh, this uh, 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 Herrera's uh, uh, Neolog- uh, neologism so I think that's a moment where you know according to your interpretation where I saw this uh, convivial experience of uh, the Arabic traditions and uh, Latino uh, Latin towns and actually uh, the dictionary of uh, untranslatables uh, is a kind of uh, in a way very European, uh, a project. Mm. It is about actually uh, uh, some, some key uh, concepts in the European uh, philosophical traditions that historically uh, are considered as the tokens of universal uh, value.
0: Oh. Uh, mm-hmm. th-
2: for example, the concept of uh, uh, freedom, the concept of justice, the concept of being. Right. But we know that in many East Asian languages, we do not have the verb to be. Mm-hmm. So actually, you know, uh, living in uh, today's world, when we look at all these uh, uh, concepts from the European uh, uh, cosmopolitan traditions, uh, they are actually untranslatable.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, being is the most fundamental concept of uh Uh, a Western philosophical tradition, uh, tracing, uh, uh, traced back to to, to Greek uh, roots. But the very foundation is a verb that is quite unique and particular to a certain part of our family tree of uh, human languages. And uh, uh, leaving through this book, I also noticed that actually uh, the, You know, even when we only uh, look at the philosophical concepts, uh, there was a deep cross uh, fertilization of uh, languages uh, of uh, Latin, Hebrew, and Arabic traditions. In addition, this dictionary is originally a collective project collective endeavor done in French, and now it's available in English. So that shows us it's that incredible. even even for untranslatables, mm-hmm. we can have a translation. Yeah. So that's also another way of uh, of, of uh, our celebration of translation in uh, our global culture.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Okay, Lisa, what, what have you
1: brought? Okay, well, I have here um, a book called Impostures. It's funny, when you said, Pooh that you had a very large book, I thought, oh my gosh, I wonder if we brought the same one. It's a fairly new book called Impostures, and this uh, is also in the same vein. It is a translation of al-Hariri's poetry from Arabic, um, a groundbreaking translation, uh, and I've, I've yet to read it, but have read Several reviews about it, and I'm very excited about it because um, Al Hariri's poetry is often thought of as untranslatable and is firmly grounded in wordplay, palindromes, riddles, etc. Um, and so uh, Michael Cooperson, the translator, uh, has been very um, creative uh, in his translatorial moves and translated many of these poems, translated each of these poems in a distinct literary style. So there's a poem translated into cockney rhyming slang, a poem translated into, I believe, like cowboy English, um, poems that imitate Mark Twain, et cetera. Um, Again, sort of upholding the idea of translation as a creative authorial act, um, which transforms meaning in its search to uh, recreate an analog to the original source text.
0: So as usual, I uh, came with something and then decided to do something else in the middle of our conversation, which to me is a sign of a good conversation because it's um, gotten me some new new thoughts and new ideas. Um, So the uh, and I don't have a copy of it here, but um, the thing that I would like to bring is a book of poems by a poet named George Caligeris called Guide to Greece. And it's a book that is both about the kind of Greek, about a series of different kinds of ancient and contemporary Greek poetic traditions, um, and sort of extending those, including the poet Kavafi and, and um, other uh, poems uh, Uh, poetic traditions that I don't know as well because I'm not an expert but but there's a lot of um, kind of beautiful self-consciousness about that and then also his own um, Greek-American upbringing in Massachusetts so I think that you know it's a book that sort of really beautifully brings together these questions about how to um, how to write Greek poetry in English but also what it means to be Greek in the United States and um, sort of seeing, seeing this, this kind of flow of language that is both kind of continuous but also sort of constantly making these new forms. So, um, and I think even the title of the book which is Guide to Greece is, is kind of ex- exemplifies that. So I think it's um, very much within the spirit of both um, Herrera's book and the, and the story that it, that it tells and also, um the project of translation that sounds wonderful yeah yeah so and uh for our listeners all of these will be on our on our website so that you get a chance to to check them out so um okay well i want to um very much thank uh lisa and poo today thank you so much for a great conversation thank you
2: thank you for having me
0: yeah it was really a pleasure um
2: yeah
0: and in closing I wanna tell all of you that recall this book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It's affiliated with public books and is usually, but not right now, recorded and edited in the music media lab of the Brandeis Library. Um, and uh, it typically has co-hosts of uh, John and myself and a number of different colleagues, including uh, Pooh and others in, at Brandeis in Boston and beyond. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden and production assistance, including website design and social media is done by Nai Kim and Nai is also the co-producer of this episode. Mark DeLello oversees and advises on all our technological matters and we appreciate the support of university librarian, Matthew Sheehy, Dean Dorothy Hodgson and the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis. We always wanna hear from you with your comments, criticisms, and suggestions for future episodes. And you can email us directly at ferry at cdu or plots at CDU. And you can contact us via social media and our website. If you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you may be interested in checking out past episodes, including topics like Vectors of Warfare with Vincent Brown, Aranir Usmani on the origins of mass incarceration, and Leah Price on children's books. So thank you and goodbye until next time.